With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. We made a 30-second parody Apple ad. Uh, Don't worry, we'll explain everything shortly. Okay, here we go. It's the result of a collective obsession. To simplify its essential components to create the most efficient design possible. It's a product that couldn't exist without invention across many disciplines. With ergonomic hand-blown borosilica glass, a rugged silicone base, and haptic feedback, it's the most familiar, comfortable, and accurate vaping device. These define the experience of the new Puffco Peak. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. And hopefully you didn't cringe too hard at my Johnny Ive impression, but we wanted to set a particular framework for this episode. Today, we're talking to Roger Volodarsky, founder of Puffco, a company that creates the best cannabis vaporizers on the market. They pay particularly close attention to design, and basically it looks like an Apple-made box. This attention to detail might seem ridiculous to the uninitiated, but as we tell Roger's story, you'll begin to understand that these vaporizers, they change lives. Roger realizes this because cannabis saved his own life from opiate addiction. There's a lot of iteration, heartbreak, and work that led Roger to evolve into the fully-fledged Steve Jobs of vaporizers. However, before that metamorphosis could transpire, Roger would have to face a myriad of traumatic events. I was raised in Brooklyn, in a not-so-good part of Brooklyn called Coney Island. Some might know it, some might not know it. And it was quite dangerous growing up. And When you say it's like a dangerous area, what, what do you mean by that? Uh, my, my first time being robbed was seven years old. I was walking home and some guy was like, hey, kid, you got any change? And I was like, no, man, I don't have any change. And he was like, I wasn't asking. And like ran my pockets and took, I don't know, I think I got 30 cents. I was seven. So I don't even know how I had any money at all. But after that, I already was properly used to just like things happening to me. So I got a bike for my birthday for my 11th birthday, and I refused to take it out because I already had so many attempts to get my bike stolen before with a shitty bike. I, I didn't even want to see what would happen with this brand new bike I got. I remember I waited like three months, and finally, my mom was just like, you got to take this thing out. Just go and take it out. And I took it out, and my uncle ended up being like, hey, let me ride this around. I think I had it outside for less than 30 minutes before my uncle got a knife put to his throat. And somebody stole the bike. And this was across the street from a police station. They don't give a fuck in Coney Island. Roger quickly learned that life wasn't fair. And this observation brewed a skepticism towards social and cultural norms. Roger internalized many of his experiences and felt that there was a colossal chasm between himself and those around him. 
The magic of being a first-generation American or, or a child of immigrants is a tale of two perspectives. And you see my immigrant family kind of telling me how they see the world and how hard you work and everything else. And then on the other side, with some of the Americans that I would hang out with, was more of a sense of, like, privilege. So I realized pretty quickly that there's the experience that I'm having in life, and then there's the experience that others are having in life. And everything is different when when you're poor. Roger was acutely aware of the division between his family and the families of his more affluent friends. He had no illusion of equality. He sat back and observed the ways in which wealth and cultural upbringing can impact daily habits and ultimately identity. This observation confirmed that he lived between two worlds and belonged to neither. When I first moved to New Jersey, I was an outcast, you know, like I'm different. I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. I speak differently. I think differently. Um, and I started getting picked on pretty quickly. And I remember over the summer between seventh and eighth grade, I was just in fear of going back to school. Like that pressure of going back to a place where you're kind of going to get messed with every day. In my mind at the time, I was like, this is so much worse than Brooklyn. Roger actually didn't mind being the outsider, but he would not endure the ridicule. It was time for him to take control of his fate. He was tired of being bullied in school and looking over his back in his own neighborhood. It seemed that every corner of the world was cruel and waiting to beat him down. But Roger was resilient, and he wouldn't take the beating much longer. I remember before I was going into eighth grade, I just had had it. It's like, I'm not going to spend this year living like this. And I went up to every bully that I, I had in seventh grade, the first day of eighth grade, and was like, hey, man, no hard feelings. I know that, you know, you probably think you're being funny. I don't think you're being funny. And I'm just going to let you know that we're going to fight today at three o'clock. And if you win, you get to say whatever you want for the rest of the year. And if I win, I'm going to keep fighting you every time you make my life hell. And 100% of those kids were like, I wasn't making fun of you, we're just palling around. And that was the first time that I'd really stood up for myself and been like, you know what? If I'm going to get hurt, I'm going to get hurt defending myself and not just getting picked on. I think that was the first time I saw the power of standing up for yourself. And so it became something that I would repeatedly do over the years. If, if you were going to test me and see, am I somebody that's going to fold or am I going to be a challenge for you? I'm going to be a challenge for you. Roger had created a protective barrier around himself. He was no longer someone that could be taken advantage of. And while he had the option to just let these daily injustices slide, to swim with the school of minnows, to assimilate, he decided that this wasn't a life he wanted to lead. He chose instead to flash his rows of teeth and fight back. And he found that he didn't really mind being this lone predator. In fact, he craved the solitude. And Roger had found a substance that would seemingly fill the emptiness of these black-blue depths that he found himself navigating. also started smoking cannabis that early at, at around 13 years old. My first time we, we went on like a high school ski trip. I bought some weed off of a kid on the bus and I rolled a terrible joint. And then I went back and told a friend about it in, in school and he was like, hey man, come over to my house. I have some, I have a pipe. I can show you how to use it. And that's what I did. And it was this extremely deep experience of like, I never felt anything so intensely before that was like not coming from within. It, it didn't change much for me in the sense of like, 
now I'm the cool kid and I'm, I'm involved with everyone. I just wanted to be left alone. Like I just wanted to live a life where being invisible seemed like an idealistic thought. If I can just walk around and nobody bothers me, like I'm safe to go and move about how I want, great. Everything after that is just gravy. I just want to be left alone. It made life not seem so bad at the time. And so it, it kind of became an instant love of like, this is cool. When I'm using this, I don't feel all the things I feel every single day, um, the bad things. It's something that I I fell in love with pretty quickly and... I also pretty instantly started getting in trouble for it. I, I came home one day, I left my pants, you know, on the floor next to the couch. And my brother woke up and picked up my pants and a bag of weed fell out. And he ran straight to my dad and was like, what's this? Well, I used the classic excuse of, you know, it's not mine. I'm holding it for a friend. And my dad's reply, I think it was, potentially the only time I've ever seen my dad cry. And he was just like, how, how did I fail so hard that you became a drug addict? And so like there, I mean, maybe this is in most immigrant families, but in not certainly in Russian ones, drugs are drugs are drugs. Weed is the same as Coke is the same as heroin. They're, they're all the same thing. They're not the same as alcohol and it's okay if you're drinking at 13, but if it's anything, it's classified as a drug in their mind, it's this highly stigmatized, terrible thing that will steal your children away from you and that seemed to be what they feared would happen granted any parent is likely to worry when their child begins drug use at a young age but roger was just a kid balancing the tightrope between two distinct cultures the russian immigrant culture that stigmatizes all drugs regardless of their effects and the jersey teen culture that played down the harmful consequences that can stem from drug use Roger didn't want to be trapped by dogma. He wanted the opportunity to formulate his own opinions. However, this experimentation would soon prove detrimental. My dad told me he was going to start drug testing me. I had to quit smoking weed. And at this point, I felt like it's something that I relied upon. Like, this is something that kind of helps me get by. And a friend of mine at the time, he came through once he knew I couldn't smoke weed. And he was like, hey, man. I was over at my grandma's house and she had a bottle in her shelf and it said controlled and dangerous substance. And that's what they say weed is. But I don't think this will come up in a weed test. You want to try it? And I was like, sure. Fuck yeah, man. I need something right now. That thing was Oxycontin. And I started using opiates. When there's something that you use that enriches your life and people start saying, it's bad for you, you start assuming that everything that they say is bad for you can enrich your life. There was no information about this thing that I'm trying that is in the family of heroin. And I just fell deep into it. It, it actually is something that I continued using. But yeah, it, it, it was something that I just didn't see what it was doing to my life. Today, the opioid crisis is in full swing. It has had devastating impacts across the United States. Over 2 million people in the U.S. are addicted to these drugs. With this context, it is nearly impossible to envision a world in which it isn't a universal truth that opioids are a highly addictive, potentially life-destroying substance. But at this time, almost no one, let alone a young high schooler, knew about its potential lethality. Roger had lost his previous coping mechanism of cannabis, and opiates became the substitute. 
and his reliance on drugs as a crutch was only exacerbated by a deteriorating relationship with his father. My dad ended up leaving at 16. When my dad left, he kind of left completely. Financially left, like there was, there was no more support in that area for me, my two younger brothers, and my mom. So he ended up trying to work things out with my mom and then like officially left at 18. So I had went to community college and, and college to me was just this obligation. And when I got there, it, it was never something that challenged me in a way that helped form an obsession or that presented problems in front of me that I needed to solve. And so when, when my dad ended up leaving, I was very quick to just get a job and find a way to try to support my family. And that happened to be as a cold caller in a mortgage company. And after doing that for just a little bit, I decided to take a semester off and that persisted for a while. And I remember going there to cold call and it was easy and it was fun. I remember thinking like, I could do this for the rest of my life. This is like interesting. You get to talk to people. You're helping people solve problems. Like this is creating an itch that I want to scratch. Uh, How I viewed my future was that there's a chance I could be successful now. And the reason I thought that was because even though I was a cold caller, I was getting leads for the mortgage brokers in the company that would then go and close these deals and make thousands of dollars closing these deals and in my mind as somebody that's never done any type of business well now I'm doing business like there's large transactions happening and we can profit from these transactions and it it showed me that there was a chance that I might not end up you know back in Coney Island signs were everywhere, but now it's official. We are in a recession. The research group that makes that... The financial crisis was the end of anything relating to mortgages, just because, you know, the financial crisis was partially caused by bad mortgage loans. But it developed me as a business person a lot. And the areas that I focused on in mortgages were the areas that were a win-win for both me and for the client. And It felt great because I'm just speaking to people and being like, you're in a situation, I have a way where I can help you save some money. And people were stoked on it and I was able to make money. Um, But it also showed me that there were a lot of people in the company that were taking advantage of people. And I kind of saw that in business, there's an opportunity to do things that you feel good about and you make a little bit less, a little bit less than you would if you just outright take advantage of people. It kind of just showed me there's... There's always a path to help people and help yourself. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Roger took the one less traveled by. He witnessed those around him taking advantage of people and profiting off the misfortune of others. He could have engaged in equally destructive behaviors, but Roger remembered what he had learned time and again as a child. Life isn't always fair. And while it isn't always fair, he knew that he had a duty to soothe the injustices of the world. Roger looked at the fork in the road and turned right. He followed the moral high ground. And by 21, he had created a thriving business from nothing. Unfortunately, success wouldn't last. I did not have a rich dad that showed me how to do business. I didn't have really any mentors at the time. And so I'm a 21-year-old that is making 
a good amount of money and I think I'm hot shit and I burn through it pretty quickly. And I'm also rocking an opioid addiction during this time. So any of the successes that I, I developed in my early 20s, they, they would slip out of my hand as fast as I can capture them. And when the crash came, it was just like, I don't want to say thank God for it, but it was like, great, I'm done. I have to figure out a new direction in life. I thought I was born to lose. Like I, I was deeply embarrassed that I had opportunity and squandered it. That I used that experience to develop an ego and false confidence over perspective. And I'm bumping into friends that graduated from NYU law school, whatever that school is. And, you know, they're telling me that they're starting to work at a firm for $180,000 a year. I, it wasn't a matter of like, do I think I'm great or not? It's like, I am a failure. I am a failure. And how long will this continue? kind of have a lot of ideas of what you'll be by 30, you know, you, you expect to either have money or be married or have kids or some expectations. And I had to decide, do I want to start pursuing a regular life or do I want a dream chase? I was just, I don't want to live a life of mediocrity. When I say mediocrity, I don't mean like you know, I have a Subaru, like I don't, I don't have many fancy things now that that's not the mediocrity I'm talking about, like mental mediocrity, an unstimulated life, a life where every day is the same. You wake up, you go to work, you come home, you eat, you sleep, you do it all over again. Though he had momentarily been trapped by mediocrity, Roger refused to resign himself to this life. He saw his peers becoming lawyers, doctors, and landing prestigious jobs at top companies. He felt cornered by conventional success. Did his life have to be a Faustian bargain? Did he have to fork his soul over to the corporate world to ascribe to this narrow vision of success? Roger didn't want this to be his life. But before he could ascend that pearly ladder of success, he still had some demons that he needed to slay once and for all. The opiate story, I guess, to, to wrap it up, um, and there was a point where I met a friend. The friend asked me if I had some, and I was like, oh, yeah, totally. I have some. Here's two. And they were like, cool, man. Thanks so much. Um, I used to have a problem with these. I don't anymore, but I've been in a little bit of pain, and I could use some. And I left their place being like, holy shit, they're a former addict, and I just gave them this. Oh, my God. I'm making other people's lives worse. It seemed to be the thing that was like eye-opening of, this is not okay. There's something deeply wrong here about the way you're living your life and how you can negatively affect others. This all happened in a very short amount of time within a few days where I'm just realizing like something is wrong. This, this doesn't feel right. I know I have a problem. And New York City just had ads on the subway. I called the ad, and that ad ended up being for Columbia University's test program to get people off of opiates. They ended up having three programs. One was where they just give you a shot, this like anti-opiate, so you take it for three months. This way you could not relapse. They have another program where they give you Suboxone, and you take that the entire time. And they had a third program where you use cannabis instead of Suboxone. And when I went there, they were like, all right, we see that you're a cannabis user. 
we're going to put you in the program where we give you nothing. We just give you the anti-opiate shot and you get no support, but we're encouraging that you continue to use cannabis. And it was extremely painful um, and hard. And I would say that one of the worst pains I've ever felt in my life was after getting that anti-opiate shot because your body kind of loses all of that natural relief or medication that your body naturally releases. That's all gone. So I'm feeling knee pain that I had as a teenager and everything hurts and there is no sleep. And it, it was mentally so hard. But at the end of that, I had no desire to use opiates whatsoever. And I haven't used them since. Literally the day that I completed the three-month anti-opioid Columbia University program, I <clears throat> ended up walking across the George Washington Bridge to go and have lunch with a friend. And I ended up jaywalking. And a cop stopped me for jaywalking and found some weed, arresting me. And this was went through my backpack, and he was like, you just got out of detox. What's wrong with you? It completely destroyed me mentally. And I ended up wanting to quit cannabis. And I called up that same Columbia University program and said, I'm addicted to cannabis. And I ended up going back to that Columbia University program. They had interviewed me and I went through all these questions. And at the end, he said, you don't qualify for the program. And what he said was, you don't have a problem with cannabis. It's not hurting your life. You're not stealing money. You're not missing work. You're not destroying your life for this. The laws around it are destroying your life. Outside of those charges, it is not doing anything harmful. Finally, Roger had the confirmation he had been searching for since the rocky relationship with his father. There was nothing wrong with him. After spending about half of his life addicted to opiates, Roger finally felt that he had been freed. In large part, he attributes his freedom to his rekindled love affair with cannabis. Despite its increasing popularity amongst their population, New York City was not quite as ready to embrace this drug. It was still extremely taboo. And so Roger and the other canophiles had to look for a discreet means to keep their relationship alive. The reason I fell in love with, with uh, wax pens is because cannabis is extremely illegal in New York. And it's extremely liberating to use a wax pen for the first time in a place where people are used to looking for joints or other forms of consumption. And this is before e-cigarettes had taken off the way they had. I felt completely liberated. This thing that people have used to mislabel me as a rebel or an outcast or a drug addict or whatever, I can now use in public and feel normal. And that felt life-changing as a cannabis user to feel just safe walking around your own city and consuming. I started off just buying a bunch of vape pens. Like I started buying vape pens that I would get on Black Friday sale and stuff. So they'd have like a 40% off sale. I gave it to my friends at 20% off and then I end up with a free one. Well, those orders that I got, they came pretty much all broken. Nothing would work in there. And so now I went and spent all this money for the sake of getting myself something that I love for free. And instead, I'm like replacing what my friends bought for them. And then one of my buddies at the time is like, dude, you are obsessed with these things. Why don't you try creating your own company? I knew nothing about product development. I knew nothing about creating any type of business like this. And so for me, it was just like, sure, why not? 
and it felt like a good thing to try like not not good for the world not good for business good for me as the thing i am going to spend all my time working on every day roger aggregated advice from his friends and started reassembling faulty vapes out of his tinkering roger had developed a better functioning user-friendly vape pen he obsessed over these vapes and that obsession came easy because he was the customer he represented millions of cannabis users that just wanted a vape to work I think it was this idea, the idea of creating a product for his community that drove him to seek perfection. He wanted to build a device that wasn't just discreet, but efficient, elegant, and easy. Once he had a clear sense of direction, his passion was ignited. This passion is something that he didn't want to hide. And luckily, one of the most important people in his life lent a hand in support of his dream. I think that my mom got access to a story that she had never heard before. She had a son that had become an opiate addict, and he had stopped being an opiate addict with the help of cannabis. She had seen me change as a human being, and she knew that cannabis was a positive part of that change. And she didn't understand it, and she didn't particularly love it, but my mom believed in me when I believed in me. Her experience with cannabis had changed because she had seen how it had changed her son's life. And so she kind of saw my obsession and was like, this seems crazy, but why not? And she actually lent me $1,200 to buy Puffco.com. And she wanted to take a chance on this new developing Roger that she hadn't quite seen before. Roger's mother had guided him throughout his childhood, and she continued to stand by his side during this new business venture. Her cultural background would lead her to reject this drug-fueled idea, but the faith and love she had for her son allowed her to transcend this cultural stigma. She found her son's story compelling enough to take a chance on him. With this support, he was ready to make his first prototype. So, like, let me just start by seeing, is there a better vape pen company out there and so then I started asking all my friends some of them suggested why don't you go to San Francisco they are huge there they're more free-flowing they have a ton of head shops and so I, I go to Haight-Ashbury and I walk around and I see all of the market options available like it wasn't just that there were a ton of them it's that they were carrying things that you would never see in a New York City head shop New York City head shops are like it almost felt like gag gifts, Th things that help cannabis users be discreet, not things that help cannabis users have a great experience. I found all of these vapes all across the country from Atlantic City to San Francisco to like anywhere I can go to get some. And my, my goal was to make something that I would want to use more than that original vape pen with plastic parts that was melting on me. I found a supplier on Alibaba and ended up working almost all of 2013, to end up releasing something in January of 2014. That product was the Puffco Classic. Puffco Classic. Puffco Classic. And I placed one order of it, probably excited like, it's happening, things are moving along, how cool. I realized that I don't believe that this is going to really do much of anything in this space. I don't think that this product is that much better. I was as excited about that product as I'm guessing an artist is about one of the first drawings that they make. It's nice. It's cool to see where you're at. 
what is in front of you is not a reflection of your greatest thoughts. That's kind of where I was at. This is cool, but this isn't doing it for me. And I was doing this for me. So what do I do now? Do I try to create a business out of this product? It felt like a very obvious answer to me. And I just sold a thousand units and I didn't reorder. And I went back to the drawing board. I stopped using Alibaba. I started relying more heavily on my network, asking who knows people in China that can really help me develop something that will be great. And that was the story of the Puffco Pro. Rather than focusing his efforts on maximizing profits, Roger was fiercely focused on designing the best product possible. And even though his first model sold well, he was far from satisfied. From the moment he held the model in his hands, Roger was already thinking of improvements. The Puffco Plastic was a mere outline of Roger's vision. With the Puffco Pro, Roger had finally created something that he could be proud of. He had taken vaporizers to the next level. The world noticed. But I really knew that this was something people loved when we won High Times Best Vaporizer of the Year. When High Times would say something is great, that's gospel. That's what everybody believes years ago because they're the authority. They're the only ones even willing to talk about these kind of things. And so what they say is respected by all. With his second model recognized by the most important publication in cannabis, Roger's initial success felt surreal. Just a few years before, his stint in the mortgage industry had swept him towards the lowest point in his life. He was determined to approach this next opportunity from a completely different angle. Previously, Roger measured value purely in monetary terms. Now he was working on a business he was incredibly passionate about, and the process of building this company was intrinsically valuable. But soon, other companies began to leech off Roger's exposure and success. I'm a first-time innovator, you know? So, like, I didn't realize that, you know, the game with innovation is the first one to do it best just determines what the rest will do. And I felt like, you know, the Puffco Pro was my baby. I had worked on the Classic, and I had given this new device my all. And companies immediately started stealing the shape, the function. It was devastating. It was absolutely devastating to be copied. You feel like somebody is taking something you love away from you and there's nothing that you can do about it. And I got distracted. I ended up paying more attention to the people copying us than paying attention to how I should grow my company. Having poured his heart and soul into the Puffco Pro, Roger was devastated as he watched other companies rip off every feature he had painstakingly crafted. It felt wrong to just stand by as these companies increased their sales and customer base through his innovations. And so Avi, who is currently our head of product, but started off as just our lead engineer, as brilliant as he is, immediately gets to work on every controllable area of the product. And what we found was that if we changed certain materials in the product, the types of ceramics that we would use, we were able to significantly increase the vapor and flavor of the product compared to what it was in our testing, not in the field even. And then once everybody had it and loved it and was enjoying it, that's when we opened up the floodgates again. And I believe that the Plus ended up being the most awarded vaporizer of the year in 2016. 
I've noticed that Roger's low points, the points where he is closest to giving up, are the catalysts for imminent triumph. The truth is, everyone experiences hardship. There will always be unforeseen storms and barricades blocking your path. But like Roger, you can choose to see adversity as opportunity. Once Roger realized that there was nothing he could do to stop imitation, he decided to stop looking back. He would innovate, move forward, and surpass his previous product and his competitors. He was in a state of flow, solving problems, challenging himself, and pushing the envelope of the cannabis industry. But Puffco's core fan base was less enthusiastic. The Plus is the best vape pen ever, ever. There's just, it's hard for us to even figure out how to improve because the flavor and the vapor are so good and it just, it does its job so well. So for me, the difference between our Puffco Pro, which is something that will get you high, but can get you a sleepy, stupid high compared to the Plus, which is something that will also get you high, but it'll give you an engaged, stimulated high. No brainer. I just want the new one. But our fans were used to this thing that would have you couch locked. And the pressure was mounting. In a lot of our comments on Instagram, people would be like, pro is better. Pro is better. And that's heartbreaking. Here we are with the most innovative thing we've been able to come up with as a company. And people are saying that our former product was better. And that's where my next hard lesson steps in. I decide to make the Puffco Pro 2 and take a step back from innovation and make a crowd pleaser. It was easy to make because it was not innovative. It was not anything new for us. And we released it and it made us, I believe that product alone made the company millions of dollars. But I hated it. I hated coil vaporizers. I didn't like the type of fans that we were adding to the company because they were not fans that were chasing experience. They were fans that were chasing a cheap high. And now I find myself in this position, I'm making products just for the sake of a sale. Roger was once again at a fork in the road. He had to choose between his passion for innovation and placating customers that chased a cheap high. Roger strives to challenge himself and has never been one to follow the whims of the masses. But his fan base didn't want innovation, so Roger obliged. He released the Puffco Pro 2, and it was wildly popular. But Roger knew that he had sold out. He had compromised his artistic integrity. That ate away at me a lot. It actually threw me into a depression. I started coming into work extremely late every day, not being engaged. It became a business. It just became a boring business for me. Like now, I'm not a product creator I'm just somebody here to make a book. And that's never what this was about. How did that affect your team and the rest of people working with you? I mean, it got to an extremely toxic point. People were ready to leave. Like I was not a happy person. I was not an inspiring person. Nobody wants a boss that comes in and acts like he's doing people a favor by just showing up. And in August of 2017 is when everything kind of fell apart. This is what felt like the end of days for the company. And people in the company were ready to quit. Personal relationships in my life started stepping away and the fact that they felt that they had to get away from me in order to protect their own sanity, that was a big wake-up call. I, I didn't think that 
I was so bad that I was driving people away. This is your behavior and the energy you're putting out into the world is pushing away people you love. And that is undeniable. And hitting that rock bottom was actually very good for me because that's where the decision came from of, I want to be a person that will attract these kind of people instead of pushing them away. And I seem to be the common denominator of why everybody is miserable. Because of Roger's deep passion for his work, Puffco had become more than just a company. His personal identity was inextricably tied to that of his company. Once again, Roger found himself at rock bottom and used this sturdy surface to launch himself towards the person he wanted to be. It felt like everything that had happened in the past five months was a gift from the universe, a chance to become something new, something that I chose to be. I mean, that kid from Coney Island that got robbed for the first time at seven years old, who's ended up being an opiate addict, whose dad left, all of these things were not decisions of mine. This is just what I had become. This was a raindrop falling on a window and everything that it touches, it touches. It doesn't have a choice. It just is what it ends up. I was no longer that. Like now I choose the direction I'm going to go in from my employees, a lot of which are my friends, I became the person that they always saw. The person that they were disappointed I wasn't when they were ready to leave. And they took a chance. They took a chance on this weird guy from Brooklyn creating a cannabis company in a place where cannabis is very illegal. They, they wanted to feel safe in my hands. And I think they finally did. The peak was released, and the peak was a massive hit upon release. Um, the peak was this gift at the time because there was this thing that I was extremely passionate about. And the thing that makes me happy about our successes is just that I get to keep doing this. It's the joy of my life. It's why it's hard for me to even think about like selling the company one day. As long as we're alive and working on our dreams and get to keep doing this together, that's, that's our goal. With the Puffco Pro 2, Roger succumbed to mediocrity and saw how that affected his life. He had suppressed the lessons of his childhood, the hard-earned lessons he had learned from standing up for himself and from forging his own path. He had caved to external pressure. But he was determined to build himself up from the rubble. Roger began to heal himself by satiating his hunger for challenge, excitement, and innovation. He doubled down on his true source of happiness. Slowly, but surely, Roger became a better person, and his company improved alongside him. He created so much internally sourced joy that he could again radiate positivity to those around him. Hearing Roger's story, I can't help but think of James Clear's 1% rule. The idea is that every day we face a choice. You either make a choice that improves your life by 1% or worsens it by 1%. Given this context, if you were to get 1% better each day for one year, you'll end up 37 times better by the time the year is up. Roger is a perfect example of this rule in action. Similarly, he invests in his health and happiness and the health and happiness of his employees. He encourages each of them to be the best version of themselves, making strides to improve the team every day. 
even if it's only by 1%. Last year, as we were working on these products, I kind of started thinking like, where is this going to go? Where, where is Puffco going to end up? And I think of Apple a lot. Apple is currently in this vacuum of innovation, right? Like they're not really doing anything more innovative with their phones. We're getting, you know, a better camera, I guess, every time. But like, it's not the newness and the exciting era that it was for their first, you know, seven years. In my mind, it's like, is this what Puffco is running towards? Are we just going to run out of ideas? And eventually this will turn into a, a business to manage, not necessarily a business to grow. And then just six months ago, we had another idea. We haven't stopped this chase of how can the things we use serve us better. And so the most exciting thing about the future is the potential to be solving the same problems that we are today. I want to pause and dive a little further into what Roger said here. In terms of the future of Puffco, he is most excited for things to stay exactly as they are. How many of us can say that? How many of us can say that we are so thrilled, so passionate, so challenged by our lives that the most exciting thing is to continue as we are? You can hear it in his voice. Roger has found his calling. And after so many years of uncertainty, after drugs and depression and all of the other struggles he faced, he has found tangible happiness. He has derived immense love and satisfaction from the company he has built. It can feel so good to chase perfection. And it's easy for us because we're cannabis users. We use the products every single day. So for us, it's... It's the power of being the consumer that also gets to control what the product should be. And I very much appreciate that I get to work on what I love every day with people that I love every day. While perfection may never be genuinely attainable, Roger chases it like the white whale. He enjoys the hunt, the new challenges, the crew that shares his passion. With that, Roger has a book recommendation and some advice for us, the people listening to this podcast. I think Zero to One is a great book. Um, we have pulled a lot from that book that um, we have used to get our business to the point that it is and being as successful as, as it is and owning our niche and work on what you're passionate about. What made me happy was jumping into something I'm passionate about. So even if it failed, I would feel like the lessons and the experiences that I got from those efforts were worth it. And if you can find that thing that you can do and not go broke and still be happy, there is no other chase that will be more worth it. There are many defining moments that built Roger into the successful man he is today. However, I think perhaps his most formative experiences came from his years towing the line between distinctly different cultures. By observing the patterns and socially determined norms of these cultures, Roger was confronted by the fact that those around him weren't living with free will. They were living lives and stories that were already written. And while many were happy to play the role handed to them, Roger decided to take control of his own life. He decided to not let stigma tie him down. 
he discovered that while some entities may be considered scandalous in one circle, it isn't predetermined to be taboo in another. Life just isn't that black and white. Rather, we live in a gray, smoky haze. When confronted with this traditional idea of success, graduating college, landing a financially secure but excruciatingly boring desk job, he pronounced that it wasn't for him. He redefined success. Just as he stood up to his childhood bullies, Roger pushed back against his cookie-cutter white picket fence life. He finds success in happiness, in following his passions. And now, to round us off, I would like to leave you all with a little tidbit from the one and only late and great Steve Jobs. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Roger has been able to follow this advice. After all that he's been through, he's been able to build a life for himself that ignites the fire inside him every single day. He's living out his passions. What more could you ask for? Mm-hmm.